wonderful time this morning in singing and in the song and the messages of the songs and especially that last one. Our worship is so much more than just a song, and so it is about Christ. I pray that this morning that you will see that. Take your Bibles and turn with me to First Corinthians chapter thirteen this morning. First Corinthians chapter thirteen. We are walking through this wonderful letter, and we are coming very close to the end of it, and so uh, we will be uh, getting there very shortly, but uh, we are walking through this chapter here in an effort to understand what love looks like, what love looks like. And so if you will, look with me here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, this will be the third part of the application of love. If you've missed the last two, you can catch those on the, uh, the website. But notice what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. He says, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And our focus this morning will fall on verse 5. Francis Schaeffer wrote this in one of his books. He said, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Wonderful question. How does the world consider the church? How does the, the world consider Christ but through the church? And so he says... By loving one another. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Wow. What a statement. He says the world is judging you and I. The lost, the unbelieving world is looking at you and they, and they are looking at me and they are making a judgment and God has given them that right that we see. That, 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 because Jesus said, by loving one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. So they are looking to see if you are a disciple of Christ and they know this by the love that we have for one another within the faith family. In other words, if we see the world is watching, and so the question then becomes is, what do they see with, with you and I, with you and one another? D.L. Moody said, show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is, that has, that is a power in the community. Let love replace duty in our church relations, and the world will soon be evangelized. If you see, what does the world see? When the world looks at FBC, First Baptist Church of Jonesboro, when, when our Jerusalem, Jonesboro, looks here at us, looks at you and I and our relationship with one another, what do they see? And not just when you on Sunday mornings, but your interactions through with the rest of the church throughout the week, what do they see? And in 1 Corinthians 13, we find a detailed list of what they are supposed to see. And we just read it, verses 4 through 7. This is, that list is a list that the world is to see in our interactions with one another. And so, so far, we've, we've looked at the two positive ones, the patience and kindness. 
And then last week we looked at the, the, first, the three, the first of the uh, negative descriptions of love. Love is not jealous, love is not boastful, nor is it arrogant. And then today we'll, we'll catch up by looking at the next four. And Paul gives us here, in, the, in verse 5, four more. He says, love is not rude. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked, easily provoked. And it keeps no record of wrong. And so this morning, this will be the ones that we see. These will be the, the, the next application of love that a local church is to have, that the world may see and know that we are disciples of Christ. And so let us go ahead and dive in this morning. The very first one, love is not rude. Or the word that Paul uses here, it, the love does not act unbecomingly. In other words, it's, it's just rude. It's, a, it's an unbecoming behavior. It describes a behavior that is unsuitable, inappropriate, and just plain unattractive. It carries the notion that the person behaves in an ugly, indecent, and unbecoming manner. And it's, a, it's, it's in present tense, even worse. It's just you're constantly rude. So, so you, you talk over people. You don't let people talk. You're, you're very brash. You interrupt people. You say uncaring things to your brothers and sisters with no thought of their feelings, no thought at all. You embarrass them publicly. You, you may talk over them, but you have an expectation that when, that, that when you talk, they must listen, though you may never listen to them. Your comments are improper. They leave people feeling as though they wish they had never heard what you said. Oh, man, how horrible a characteristic that is. As a Christian, to, to say things and that you left those around you wishing they never had heard what you said. You pride yourself on speaking your mind. You know, I, I just say what is on my mind. And that's a, I, I'm just a good person that way. I, I say it, and I say it bluntly. And I'm that kind of person with no thought of how it makes others feel. You are rude. And so therefore, because you're rude, you do not care to keep your behavior together. You, you do not care to keep your behavior together in order that you, for just a moment, may be polite to others. And we see this in, in Corinth. Do not do we not see this in Corinth when they were going to the Lord's Supper? Remember they had those, those potlucks? And you remember that many of them would would go early and eat all the food with no thought of the other individuals. How rude. You would, you would go to the potlucks, and not only that, do you remember they would drink at the potlucks? Obviously they were not Baptists, but anyways. They would go to the potlucks, and they would, they would begin to drink, and they would become drunk, and they would act in an unattractive, behavior, in unattractive ways and say things that they should never say. And we all know that when you get like this, you probably begin to say things that are embarrassing. And you may have said things to one another that people didn't wish others to know, but you knew. And so, very in a very rude manner, you began to bring to light other people's sins. During the worship service, they would rudely talk over one another. And we, we see, now this is very much Baptist, that, that we see where, where, you know, when we get the pulpit, you know, we got something to say. I got, I, I got something on my heart, and I just got to say it. And you may take up 30 minutes of time. You know, we see this every time a good associational, you know, we just begin to take up time, other people's time, with no thought of, of, of those who, are, who have put things together. You may parade around your spiritual gift so that you can, so you can pride yourself over others. 
Over and over, the church of Corinth was a very rude church. They had no consideration of one another. Now, here's the thing. Rudeness may not be a, a grave sin. It's certainly not the, the worst sin, but it is not a behavior of a person who claims to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very essence of divine love, brethren, the very essence of divine love is that it attracts people, right? It attracts people. It is, all men will know that you are my disciples, my loving one another. And there's this idea here that it's something that they see and they want, they want to be a part of. But here, you're doing the opposite. If you really want to sum it up, as one author said, I love this, he said, love has manners. Love has common courtesy. Selfless love is never rude or or offensive, but it does strive to have good manners. And so, FPC, you and I have to ask ourselves as individuals, are we rude people? Are we a people who pride ourselves on our behavior and the things that come out of our mouth, no matter what it makes others feel? Are you a person who listens or are you a person who talks over people and expects them to listen, though you do not repay them the same favor? Do you interrupt others? Do you make public comments for the purpose of embarrassing one another? Do your jokes go too far? Or are they dirty jokes? Do you speak your mind and it hurts the feelings? Brethren, those rudeness may not be one of the grave sins of the Bible, but I will say this, you run a great risk. If you're a Christian this morning and you are rude, you run a great risk because your behavior will turn people away from the church. We've seen it before. We've heard the stories of individuals who come to, to the church and there are those who, who rudely did things and they say, I want no part of that. No one wants to be around someone who's constantly rude. And so therefore, if we are the salt and the light of the world, our job is to preserve the church. Our job is to be a light of the world, to guide people to the very presence of God. But if we are rude, we are drawing no one in to the presence of our Lord. But I would also warn you this morning that if you are a rude individual, you will also disrupt the unity of your faith family. Because as we said last week, this is the place where we want to be above all other places. This is home. We are more at home here. I'm more at home when I'm in your presence than I am in the presence of any other. And, and, and FBC, I, I, this is true. This is true for me. I am at home with you and, and, and see you as my family and you see one another and myself as your family. We, we love this. But here's the problem with rudeness. You see, think about it in, in your own life when you go to work or you go to a family function or you have to go somewhere and you go, oh, so-and-so is going to be there. How, and they're so rude. And you think, I, wouldn't, I, just, I don't want to be around that person. But change the setting to the church. Not only do they not, not only do we want, not only do the lost not want to come, but even the own believers within the church do not want to be around you. Because you think not of others. So rude behavior, this unloving behavior that Paul says here, will disrupt the unity of the faith family. Because it will hurt the assembling of one another. 
Maybe this morning you look at yourself and you see this. You see the Church of Corinth. You see the things that we talked about. And you say, I, I'm one of those people. That's me. Brother, sister, would you repent this morning? Would you repent of your unloving behavior? Would you re- repent of this unattractive behavior? Uh, this is not how we as Christians are to act. We, we are the light of the world, salt of the earth. But not only would you just repent, we have to understand it's not just confession. Repentance is turning away to something. It's turning away from the sin and to Christ. It's turning away to his type of behavior. And what we find is, is that we are to turn away from this inconsiderate behavior and begin to turn to the way that Christ loved, and that is to consider others and not just consider them a little bit, but consider them deeply. Whether it be by listening, slow to speak, quick to hear. Giving people chances to speak, giving, considering the feelings of others, considering how our own words hurt one another, how our own words do. There are some things that you need to say to individuals in private and not in public. Begin to think of your faith family. Begin to think of how Christ has treated you and how he has been with you, that you may begin to love in a way that is attractive, in a way that is becoming that others are drawn to you and not away from you in your own church. So we see here the first char- this next characteristic is that love is not rude. But look at the next one. Love does not seek its own. Now to seek its own means that love, this is that, that this loveless person desires to have his or her way. Now notice the word seek. It is a constant, it is a constant searching. This is very much for those who know me. This is very much how I live my life. I am constantly searching for things. And it's always the things that I've lost. For those who know me know that I lost my wallet about a month ago, only to find it in my pants pocket last Sunday. I searched high and low for, for over a week. I forgot that I had two blue suits. I only checked one blue suit. I had two. But I was searching over and over and over again. And so in every circumstance, this word here that love does not seek, it does not search his own, what he is saying here is, is that in every circumstance and in every moment of your life, you are searching for your own personal benefit. The ESV translates it this way, love does not insist on its own. So I'm not only searching, but I insist in every circumstance, in every, in every moment of my life, that I get my way. Meaning the person not only searches, but demands. It is my way or no way. As I said, the Greek here, as the last one, is also in present tense, meaning this is you constantly. This means that there is never a moment where you're actually searching to benefit anyone else, that you're never actually searching to benefit those around you, only yourself. Is this not what we saw in Sunday school? Was this not Solomon in Ecclesiastes, the man who, who, who constantly works for himself? He has no dependent, he has no son, he has no brother. Do we not see this in Sunday school? The man who constantly labors his whole life for himself that no one else may benefit him. What did he say? Vanity all is vanity. Selfishness plagued the Christian church. They thought of their conscience and their rights only. Never thinking of the other individual's conscience, how their, what their conviction said. And so if their conviction or their conscience said something different than their conscience, well, then you're wrong and you need to be like me. Never considering the others. 
They rushed to the Lord's Supper to eat all the food with no thought of the others. No thought that there were poor people in the church who, who didn't get to have the food, you know, the three meals a day like, like they did. And so they never thought of the poor. They demanded that their spiritual gift be recognized. My spiritual gift be used in the service. You had women in the church who insisted on preaching, even though we've already seen that the Word of God shows us that, that, that that's unbiblical, but yet it's my way. And what happens is when we begin to do this in these areas, we begin to twist even the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only are we not loving one another by insisting on our way, we're not loving the Father because we twist His own Word to get our way rather than bringing praise and honor to Him. Now, at the core of this very issue was the problem of selfish gain. And everything the, the, Christian, the Christians at Corinth were doing, they were wanting to gain for themselves. Yet, are we any different? Are you any different? Is it always about your recognition? It, it, you know, if you are not recognized for something, you begin to search for ways to do it. You begin to make comments. You begin to pass things along to people and eventually it gets passed to the right people and therefore they're like, oh, we got, yes, yes, okay, we'll go. And we'll, you, you're going to get your way. Maybe it's your own happiness. And you say, well, I'm not happy unless I go buy this vehicle. And, and I've got to have this vehicle. I, I mean, certainly I, I don't have the money to pay for the vehicle, but I'm going to find a way to get this vehicle at the very cost of other things. So I'll work more, maybe, to have more money, but yet you miss church. But I'm going to get my happiness. I'm going to get what I want, no matter the sacrifice that I have to make in order to be happy. Well, here's one that's very convicting for yours truly. Our own convenience. Is there something that you've been asked to do? Is there something that comes up, whether it be in the church or whether within the family? And it's, and you, and you're, you're, it's not a convenience to you. And so therefore, in order to make it convenient for you, you search and make changes and you do everything you can that you're taken care of and you find your comfort. It can, again, it can be financial gain. It can be our way or the highway. It can be our, our freedoms and our rights, our consciences and our convenience. It can be so many different things. But in every situation, I'm searching for my way. Brothers and sisters, this describes your behavior. Hear me this morning. You're a loveless person. You're one who doesn't care enough to seek the benefit of others. And this is not me speaking. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. This is what we have seen in the entire letter. This is not agape love. The love that sacrifices for others. And, 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 notice, and notice what he says here again. Notice how he says it. It does not seek its own. And so it's been present tense. So it's constantly seeking the love of others. Is this not what God has done for us? An unselfish love. It seeks the benefit of others. And notice that Paul says here. He says does not. So it's not just constant. It's absolute. It never seeks its own. In other words, it never seeks its own but will always insist on the benevolence of other individuals, that they themselves receive love. Let me warn you this morning, if you are a self-seeker this morning, 
May I warn you of what Jesus said. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, you may be one of those individuals that you search and you insist and you demand in every situation to come out on top. And you do. You're just, you just come out on top because you make it happen. You, you're going to demand that it happen. And so you are a winner in every situation. You gain the world. You, you get everything. But according to 1 John chapter 2, 9-11, through 11, that those who do not love their faith family, who do not love one another, and self-seeking Christians, that's not loving. John says you are in danger of walking in darkness. So I ask you again, brothers and sisters, what is it? What do you gain? What do you profit? If you always search for yourself and you always come out on top, never to ever search for the benevolence of others, and you forfeit your soul. A selfish lifestyle will make will not make you a winner in the end. And as Christians, how dare we? Be men and women who think only of selves when the God of the universe denied himself, took on flesh, left everything in heaven behind to come that he may be not only one of us, but be humiliated even by us for our benefit and for our salvation. Well, I would call on you this morning to instead seek not selfish gain, but to serve Christ and to serve others. And then and then only will you understand true love and true gain. Deny yourself. Decrease yourself. And increase those around you. But secondly, I would warn you that that if this morning that self-seeking Christianity can never be considered true disciples of Christ. If Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are a disciple, brother and sister, if you are self-seeking in all things, if it is always you and you alone, you will never be seen as a disciple. The world will look at you and they will wonder, does his, wor- his actions do not match his words. True love requires us to forsake love of self. And by Jesus' own standards and his own words, we are not disciples if we constantly seek after our own way, our own gain. FBC, if this is you, repent and love as Christ has loved us, not himself, but us one another and here's the beauty of this you have a place in which you can do this you say brother brian where where can i begin to repent and truly begin to show benevolence to one another to begin to care for one another? how can i have a life marked by doing good a life that has a purpose of caring for one another right here in this faith family you can seek the recognition of others and not yourself in this faith family you can seek the financial gain of others and not yourself in this faith family you can seek happiness for others you can seek the spiritual growth of others you can seek helping others that others in this church may be benefited and that the church as a whole will be benefited and as we seek to reach our Jerusalem our Jerusalem will be benefited 
If you are looking for a place in which you are to die to self, brother and sister, look no further than the church. God has given you a people in which you are able to seek their, seek to love them and their benevolence. But notice thirdly, he says love is not provoked. It's not provoked. They're, they're not easily angered. To provoke implies a sudden increase in emotion. Someone has irritated you. Now, I understand that no one in this room has ever been irritated. Amen? It's what it actually is. You can't say amen, say oh me. All right? Yes, to, to, improve, to provoke implies a sudden increase in emotion. I, I know you, none of you know what I'm talking about. Sudden increase of, of heat, hotness here. You've been irritated, and, and, and so you act out, and you, you bust for, forth with anger or maybe even sadness. An example of this is found in Numbers in chapter 20, verses 10, 11, and 12, where Moses takes the rod, and in a burst of anger, what does he do? He, he hits, he slams on the rock. I mean, and certainly the, the Jewish people were stiff-necked people, and, and they deserved Moses' anger, right? Yeah, this is exactly how we are. We see our own selves in Moses. And so Moses here is very much, and you and I are very much, Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered people, where he says a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. And so this involves lashing out with words. It involves becoming hot-tempered. It become, and, and in some cases, in some cases, and I pray for none of us in here, even lashing out physically to do physical harm to another. In the Corinthian church, this happened. It happened over and over again to the members. They, they led foolish lives and did foolish things because what we see here is, is that they had factions. And so they, they would, something would come up and that hot-tempered anger would, would, would fester and blow. And, and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, your best friend is sitting on the other side of the church. It happens, doesn't it? We'll get to another one, that keeping a record of wrong in just a moment. I've seen this one where people... Were, uh, there are a couple that said, we want to grow, we want to build relationships with some people that we haven't been very close to, and so they moved to another side of the church. But those people were so mad at things that had happened in the past that when they moved, they got up and moved to the other side of the church in a fit of anger. They had lawsuits. They would sue one another because of something happened in the church. They would... Speak up in words. You think about every, think about the very reason that this letter was written. Paul receives word of their division and their arguments. And so he, he writes to rebuke them. And he said in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, he said, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not one among you, not among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brothers go to law with brother, brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Apparently, the Corinthians were not able to have. Loving, mild conversations. In other words, we had to close the business meeting. Because no one in there was wise enough and mature enough to just mediate and keep it down a notch. I remember my first church that I pastored. I remember, I remember the, the split. I, they taught that the, there was a church down the road, it was a split, and, and they talked about the night. I was like, the night, yes, the business meeting night. 
where more people attended that meeting than probably an average Sunday morning. This was 30, 40 years ago. And the fist fight broke out at the altar. And they still thought about it. Still some were upset about it. Others were probably proud about it. But this was very much Corinth and very much many other Christians. Let us not pride ourselves in thinking that we are any better. Do you, not, do you know that there are topics within the church that we can't talk about? Do you know there are, there are issues, there are conversations that cannot be happen, that cannot happen in this very church and in other churches, but in this church probably as well, in which we cannot talk as brothers and sisters because it provokes us to anger? Do you know there are doctrinal issues, there are doctrinal things, true convictions of doctrine that we just can't talk about because you, you start talking about it and it's just, how dare you talk about that? How, how, we can't have this discussion. How unloving is that? Even if someone is wrong, how unloving it is that we can't listen to one another, but we, full of emotion, get angry at one another over doctrinal issues, that we can't actually sit down and talk and go through the Scriptures and begin to lead one another to truth. Because just maybe, maybe one of us is wrong. Or maybe we're both, maybe, there, maybe there's something here. But we, we have to be able to have cool, calm heads in order to talk. But there are doctrinal issues. Do you know there are political things we can't talk about? If we can't say amen, say ouch. Political issues that get brought up in the church and we can't even talk about them. Because one or both will get provoked. And in this day's health opinions, we cannot even, we, we just, we, we can't talk about these things. There's traditions. And, and just anyone thinks that the old oh, preacher, he, he's, he's stepping on our toes, brothers and sisters. Let, let me just let you know, I'm an emotional person. If there's anyone who understands the heat that rises up within a man, it's me as well. But this is unloving when the people of God cannot even talk to one another because we get provoked to anger. And if you are wondering if there are times for righteous anger, yes, there are. There are times in which the people of God have a, have a reason to be angry in which we're able to act out justly and righteously. You, if, and, if, and I don't have time to go through all this, but let me just say this. If you want to know, when we look at Jesus and we look at Paul, if you'll go and look at the things that provoked Jesus and Paul, it was never the things that provoked them. It was never the things that, it was never about self. It was never about self. It was what angered God angered them. But we know that even in their anger, they handled it correctly and biblically. James chapter 1, 19 and 20 says this, everyone, who should, everyone should be quick to listen and notice this, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Now, I love this. He says, you, you know, we got to listen to one another, slow to speak. Don't be provoked. You got to restrain yourself. You got to restrain that mouth. And, and, and I, I know that I was nicknamed the mouth of the South. I understand that. Restrain the mouth. But notice why, though. This is, we always talk about that, you know, you know, you know slow to speak, quick to listen thing. But, but notice what he says here. The next verse, James says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And so many times as Christians, this is what we do. That in our anger, we turn and go, well, he or she deserved it. 
They committed a sin, and by golly, I, I know I may have went overboard, but they deserved it, and now they'll do it. They'll be right. My, I, I, yes, they deserved it. In my anger, in my anger, I corrected it. Your anger does not, will not, cannot, ever produce the righteousness of God. That is the job of the Spirit. And not only, is, not only is it the job of the Spirit to produce righteousness in individuals, brothers and sisters, it is also the job of God to bring judgment to those who do wrong. He himself holds the sword. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so many times we try to do good, but we do it in the wrong way, and we do it in anger. And we believe that our anger is justified. And James says it can never be justified because your anger is never going to produce the fruit that you want to produce. And so therefore, being provoked in the church has no place. There's no place for for those of us to be angry and provoke with one another. And so FBC, may I advise you this morning that the quick-tempered, easily provoked behavior of a Christian is a major risk to loving one another. Proverbs 14, 29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In other words, you're going to act foolishly, and you're going to have regrets. So, so true love, practical love, boots-on-the-ground love is love that does not act in a way that leaves us with regrets. Where you just get so mad, you just let someone have it, and you walk away and go, I should have never said that. I should have never said that. And if you do that, it remains unloving until you show the true act of love, and in humbleness and humility, you go back and repent and ask for forgiveness and make things right. Quick anger will leave you with many bad decisions and regrettable memories. And how many of us have those today? Quick anger leaves us with full, a life full of regrets. But not only that, brothers and sisters, it stirs, this, stirs up strife in the church. It stirs up tri- strife in the church, in the family, and in the community. Proverbs 29, 2, an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Your life is in complete disarray, and there is strife in there in every relationship. And, and nine times out of ten, we're all wondering why. And it's us. Why do we see a life full of strife and reg- regrets? Because we are a loveless people. Because we do not have the love for others in order to restrain ourselves of our anger to be humble and kind and patient. Beloved, if you cannot control your actions when irritated or questioned, you are not loving according to the love chapter. Therefore, you must repent and turn your anger this morning to the restraint of love. Love by being slow to anger and slow to react. And then notice the next one. Love does not account a record of wrong. 
taking account means to think of something in detailed, logical manner. You occupy your mind with wrongs. You, basically, you have an inventory list. You have a ledger of all the, the wrongs that people have done you. But it's even worse than that because it's in your mind. And so you're constantly flipping the pages no matter what. You don't have to go get the ledger. It's in your mind. You never let it go. And so you're flipping the pages of, of all the offenses that, that people have done to you, all the wrongs. You have a checklist. And brothers and sisters, this is very destructive to you. This behavior was happening in the Corinthian church. They were keeping records of who ate meat offered to idols and who didn't, who keeping a record of who had this gift and who had that gift. And, and, and you know, so, so they, they used their gift up there and got in front of me and I didn't get to do. They were keeping records of who, who offended who in their lawsuits. They were keeping a record of wrongs. In other words, they were unforgiving of one another. FBC, can I tell you this morning that the act of unforgiveness is the most unloving characteristic a man or woman can have. I caution you today that if you, are, if you cannot forgive, if you cannot forgive someone for the wrongs, I don't care how wrong it was, if you cannot forgive them for the wrongs that they have done for you, and you keep an inventory of wrongs in your life, you risk being a loveless person And I will say this, it is a waste of time. Because you're constantly going, you're wasting your time with something that God should, that that God can easily take care of you. And God has taken care of for you in Christ. And so such unloving behavior occupies your mind that you have no time to think on the Lord. You have, you have no time to, for, for, to meditate upon his mercy and his grace. Not only that, it will leave you hopeless and it will leave you loveless and it will leave you bitter. And eventually... You will not be able to love anyone because everyone is going to do a wrong to you at some point in life. You will never live a life where, your le- where that ledger is clean. Even your Christian family is going to hurt you. But they are not the problem here. The problem is, is you have refused to forgive them And so the greatest warning of this comes in Matthew chapter 18. And I want to read this to you this morning. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives a parable beginning in verse um, 21. Then Peter came and he said to him, Lord, how often shall shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say up to you seven times, but to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts for his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. But so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying have patience with me and i will repay everything and the lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and he forgave him the debt but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii so small and he seized him and began to choke him saying pay back what you owe and so the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying have patience with me and i will repay you but he was unwilling and he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed And so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Summoning him to his Lord, he said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Brothers and sisters, unforgiveness is unloving. But do you not notice the other characteristics in the parable? The servant was not only unforgiving, but he was rude. He was quick-tempered. And he kept a ledger, he kept a record of wrongs done to him. So you see it all in this one parable. Why? Because these are the traits of men and women who have not experienced the forgiveness of Christ. Or these are the traits of men and women who have forgotten the forgiveness of Christ on their life. And so let me remind you this morning that you and I are the servant in the story. That your sins were at such a great cost and you have such a debt that you could never pay back. But God of heaven said, I will pay the debt and it will be my son, Jesus Christ. And so Christ paid your debt through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And now he says, I have loved you that you may love others. Rudeness, self-seekingness. Being provoked and unforgiveness are not the traits of men and women who have experienced the debt, their debt being paid in full. This is the opposite. So only until you experience and feel this kind of forgiveness, this kind of love, can you be a loving person. And so to the unbeliever this morning, I I say to you, you owe an impossible debt and your puny deeds of love that you think will one day win you favor with God, they will not win you favor So come to Christ this morning, cry out for mercy this morning like the servant. Cry out to him and say, I have a debt that I cannot owe. My love, my deeds of love are puny inside of yours, Father. And cry out this morning and be saved this morning. And to the believer, I would say to you this morning that you have received divine grace. Your debt has been paid. But unlike the servant, you must not forget. You must not walk out of the chamber of the Lord God Almighty and find those and be rude to them and self-seeking and to be be provoked to anger and to be unforgiving to them. But instead, under the conviction of our Lord today, may we ourselves seek to do the opposite of all these, that we may love like the one who forgave our debt, love others. If you are under conviction today, brothers and sisters, It's because you have forgotten how great the love of God was on you and the forgiveness of your sins. And I exhort you this morning, I plead with you this morning to come and repent this morning that you will not feel the chastisement of our Father, but you will be known as a man or a woman of love. Come and repent this morning if this is you. And in closing, I leave you with Richard Linsky, a commentator. I found this to be amazing. He says, selfishness lies at the root of a thousand evils and sins in the world and in the church. And then he gives the cure. Listen to what he said. Cure selfishness. Cure the unloving selfishness within you. And you will replant the Garden of Eden. I ask you, what do you want the world to see? What do you want them to see? My prayer is, as they see the Garden of Eden right here in this people by the fruit of love that comes from the love of the Father. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us repent of our selfishness this morning.